This podcast is brought to you by Central, helping schools work smart. I'm Colin Klupik, and you're listening to Central Station. Well-being is a critically important aspect of student and school life, and it gives us great pleasure to bring you a series of discussions on well-being in partnership with Callaghan College, Walls End Campus in Newcastle. I had the opportunity to talk with Deputy Principal Kylie Fabry about her role and what kinds of challenges schools are faced with these days when it comes to the subject of well-being. As I quickly found out, Kylie's role is complex and very demanding. Um, so I'm the Deputy Principal of currently this year's Year 8 and Year 10. Um, I manage wellbeing, academia, whole school, professional learning for staff. I also walk across the other campuses and within the colleges as well, looking at strategic planning, uh, future vision and direction of our college and our campus. Um, so a fairly complex job on a day-to-day basis. Uh, I think the biggest thing is... Um, not so much a job, but it's forming the relationships with young people. And I pride myself on treating young people um, the same way I expect my own children to actually be treated within a school setting. Um, but our core business is teaching and learning um, and improving the student outcomes. And that's what, based on professional learning and the interactions of kids that I do on a day-to-day basis. These discussions were recorded on campus. And we thank Kylie for giving up her time in what was clearly a busy schedule. If you listen carefully, you'll notice the sounds of school life in the background, from the cars outside to birds in the trees, the school bell and the students wandering by on their way to classes or to see Kylie for various administrative matters. In these discussions, we'll cover the nature of well-being in schools today, the benefits of using a centralised system like Central to manage well-being, how categorisation works when it comes to different types of behaviours, and the way that technology is influencing the lives of students. And we'd like to make an important disclosure. Callaghan College uses Central as its school management platform. But these discussions are more about the students than they are about the software. And we hope that anyone listening to these discussions will benefit from the insight and experience that Kylie will be sharing. Kylie, thanks for joining us today. With respect to well-being, why is it that we actually talk about well-being? And has that word changed over the years? So quite a number of years ago, probably about maybe five years ago, we used to refer to um, the way students either behave or conduct themselves in a school um, or struggle in a school as welfare. And then I think it would probably be mainly general consensus that the name started to change. Um, We started to consider well-being so that well-being didn't look at the deficit model um, in terms of a child um, within inside of a school, but looked at all the things that make up that child, both physical, emotional, mental um, and spiritual. We talk about um, well-being as a large umbrella because it's what affects how a student performs within a school, both their educational outcomes, but also um, their sense of belonging and their relevance to um, school. So we talk about it now not in the fact that it's a negative but rather a positive and the holistic aspect of an actual student. 
So do the students pick up that that it's more positive as well? Do they have a more positive association with the word well-being or is it just a title to the administrators? I think that not so much maybe the students in terms of um, the word well-being, but I definitely think the community and our parents term well-being more positive than uh, the word welfare. We used to perceive and maybe it's a generation because the generation of kids that are coming through are using the word well-being more they hear it more in our actual curriculum particularly in things like peter hpe so i don't think that the students see it any different but our community i think see it different that um, students can go to the head teacher of well-being or can go and um, see someone about their well-being because it's about them and how they're particularly feeling but not necessarily on a deficit so I, yeah i think it's more the community that probably see it as being as well-being's proactive not reactive does that make them more uh, uh, inclined to come and talk to someone if they think it's the director of well-being has that changed their behavior as in the parents in the community yeah i think that we um promote well-being um we talk about students and how they are actually coping both um, academically and emotionally within inside of a school so we have more parents and community members contacting us about students and about how they can be supported and the students supported um, in terms of the child's well-being it's probably actually made um, well-being more inclusive for all um, whereby we work on um, I guess like a team's model we're all part of the well-being of one particular child um, and that means that we've got family, friends, community, teachers um, and the child themselves involved in that their whole well-being makeup. So how has the, uh, the nature of well-being changed uh, in terms of what's presenting? How, do, we, do we move through trends? Um, do, do, do we go through, say, seasons of problems? I mean, I'm trying to think of a way to describe what, uh, what students might be going through over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, if I go back maybe 10 years ago, Um, we would often hear things more like this child's got ADHD and that was our big ticket item. Then we moved through a phase of maybe um, ODD and and all those acronyms of um, diagnosis. Yeah, or or disorder. Yeah, or disorders. And we we now know, though, that more of our young people are suffering from depression and anxiety um, than ever before. Um, So that's a very, very big challenge for us um, in schools and how we cater um, for those students. Um, We also know that we have a number of students that require learning adjustments um, now either based on um, their own intellectual ability or the diagnosis that they may have. That could be including things like, you know, um, Erline syndrome. Um, So it's not necessarily based on well-being um, in terms of mental. It's also any other sort of diagnosis that the child might have medically. When we encompass well-being now, we have to consider how all these things can impact on a child um, in the classroom. In saying that, we also know that we have a lot of students that we um, now, I guess, flag as being gifted and talented or um, have skills that may be beyond their stage. Um, And that also brings about different things in terms of social, um, them fitting in socially. Um, More so, I think, in today's society of the, especially in high schools, um, is our ability for for us to educate students about emotional intelligence and their ability to bounce back and resilience. Um, Particularly year seven and eight students, girls, their resilience, their conflict resolution skills is probably not um, great. 
So um, there is definitely trends in terms of age groups. There's mm-hmm. definitely trends in where we see what's being diagnosed of students um, and age. But I think, though, we have a lot more knowledge within school now to help us gain a better understanding. Can I just uh, draw your attention back to what you mentioned a minute ago, which was uh, learning adjustments? Is that what we used to call learning difficulties? No, so learning adjustments are the things that we do inside the classroom that the teaching staff do to make learning um, more targeted to the individual needs of a particular child. Um, so, for example, um, some students may need blue paper because they can read off blue paper oh, okay, better. Right. Yep. Um, some students may need extra time to do an assessment task or they may need a, um, a rest break. We have other adjustments that we do. Um, instead of handing out a worksheet to a child that has 100 lines of writing, mm. we may chunk that and give it to a child um, in smaller sections to help them. So it's more so that the curriculum... Um, can be accessed by all. Not all students need learning adjustments, um, but there is a significant number of students that need learning adjustments now, either because they've got a diagnosed disability or diagnosis medically. Um, sometimes we choose to do those, make those adjustments uh, to best suit the child um, to meet their learning needs, but also because we want, we want them to have... Um, success Mm. and sometimes by condensing the curriculum and or by breaking the curriculum down gives that child that opportunity to have success in the classroom and beyond. When you say that uh, anxiety and depression are uh, or that you're more aware of it now than you ever have been before or that the school is does that come as a surprise? Given the generation of children children that we're coming that are coming through um, I'm not I guess we are totally not surprised. Um, we take into account that um, we live in a generation with children of mobile devices, electronic devices. They don't switch off yeah. um, 24-7. <laughs> um, when I went to school, we went to school at 9 o'clock, we left at 3 o'clock and whatever happened at school stayed at school until yeah. the very next day. Yeah. Um, so there's so many impacting things um, based on, I guess, with anxiety and depression. We are now more aware of anxiety and depression because um, I think that we've got more knowledge and obviously experts in the field, the psychologists, psychiatrists, have more knowledge as well. But I think there's a number of impacting influences. Gaming, we know, um, lack of sleep. Game, as in um, gaming? As gaming, in, as in- gaming online and um, students gaming. We have so many students that probably don't go to sleep before maybe 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, because they're actually gaming at home. Um, So all of those things, um, we talk about food and diet, the impact on um, well-being. We also have um, many parents now who actually work and have to work for survival of their own home. Um, So being able to balance work, life, family impacts on our children as well. And that's based on, I guess, the society that we live in. Um, It'd be nice for everybody to stay home all the time, but... The world's an expensive place to live. So we've got families that, that work as well. So lots of things that impact on our young people that need to be catered for within school settings. I guess the way that you've described all of those factors just then indicates to me, I mean, I guess someone listening to this might think, well, all of those things are unlikely to change anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be that this is just going to continue going on in that direction. How do you see that panning out? Um, I think that we now, um, as schools, um, and this is where our well-being head teachers and our well-being staff, as our such as our year advisors, have to be very, very um, conscious of the things that we're providing students in the school that aren't necessarily in the curriculum. So we provide um, well-being days where we guess get 
get guest speakers in. Um, only recently we had a year 10 um, do a project on um, called a Love Me Mission and they started to learn about themselves and an understanding of themselves. So that's that emotional intelligence mm. um, and having the capabilities to understand yourself and manage and self-regulate yourself. So I don't think that anxiety and depression um, are going anywhere soon, but the things that we are teaching inside of schools extend beyond the curriculum because we have to include um, things such as emotional intelligence. Um, when st- students have a sense of belonging to their school and they find their schooling relevant, that also helps with their own emotional intelligence as well. Coming up, I continue talking with Kylie about this issue of anxiety and depression and how the parents are becoming more aware of it also and what they can do about it. It's a big topic and we'll have more on that in just a moment. For a different angle and strategy on student well-being, you may also wish to check out my conversation with Greg Robinson. He's the head of students at Hunter Valley Grammar School and has a key role in the management of student well-being. They're doing some really interesting things with the concept of mindfulness and being present in the moment. And that's the whole aim. It's being present in the moment. The, the students, um, after one of the sessions, a number of them were going off to a debate that they were actually quite worried about. And they said the difference it made to them, to they did the session where it, they focused on the breathing um, and they were very still and, uh, and just focused on their body at, the, at that time. The difference that that made to them, they said, was incredible. The, the anxiety dissipated and they felt really focused and they were ready to to go into the debate. You can find that conversation by scrolling back through our archive in your favourite podcast app and searching for Greg Robinson. So is this something that the parents are concerned about equally, as in have have other... Are the parents noticing anxiety and depression in their children as much as the school is? Mm I think probably back about maybe six years ago when social media became a big fad, um, we used to have lots of parents actually come in and ask us, what is this about and how do we do this and how do we manage that? <laughs> oh, <dear>. um, <laughs> and, and now we have a lot more parents on board. Um, they have a lot more knowledge themselves. Um, they are accessing more knowledge um, and educating themselves. So I think that we're lucky in the sense that our community is working with us a majority of the time rather than against us in terms of understanding needs for students um, and their willingness to work with us as part of a team in the best interest of their own child to help their own child cope um, but also they're seeking other resources outside in the community such as counselling and mm. private psychology um, headspace and um, is also offered as part of a government service so our parents and community are becoming more aware as well, and I think that's the changing nature in parenting. I always say that parenting doesn't come with an instruction manual, no. um, and <laughs> that we've got generation change with what young people are exposed to, um, and such. Has, and, and parenting's had to change according to all of those other influences. And I guess that fits much better, I suppose, under that broader umbrella of well-being rather than something like welfare. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking about a, a, you know, team involvement, you're talking about greater parent involvement, a greater insight on both sides of the, uh, both sides of the equation. We, we also hear a lot about uh, medication these days, students being on medication. Now, and, and you mentioned the word diagnosis before. Is, is that because there is more diagnosis or is there is there just a greater tendency to want to hand out medication? Where, where are we at with that these days? 
I think that it depends on um, the child, the parents and recommendations that have been put forward. My own personal opinion is that medication is the band-aid, um, but the actual strategies that are implemented by psychologists, psychiatrists, medical professionals is far more important than the actual medication. In saying that though, I experience when a child is not medicated, um, sometimes you can see a very big behavior change or their ability to concentrate um, or perform within a school setting. So what we deal with too is um, a lot of um, hormonal change with adolescents Mm. and you see medication change then as well. And some people say, well, no, the medication is not working. Some people say it is working. Um, And there's a whole imbalance there as well. So I I don't necessarily believe that medication is being used just for the sake of being used. Mm. I honestly believe we, we know that we've got a number of services for adolescent psychology that can sometimes be a five to six week wait. So I do think that people are using other strategies and services rather than just medication. But in some circumstances, medication is the answer for particular individuals. And, and we provide regular feedback to paediatricians Often sometimes when um, students are going to get um, reviews from their paediatrician about um, the times of the day that things are working, the number of incidents that a child may be having or when it's happening, and that can then help modify and change that medication as the, you know, the medical person feels fit. But I don't think that um, it's being used just for the sake of it. Well, let's talk about some of those other services that support the medication. If I go back to when I was a, a kid at school uh, back in the 80s, <laughs> I, I can't, you know, I've thought about this long and hard, but I, I can't actually remember talk of a school counsellor. Um, I can't remember uh, friends of mine having to ever see the school counsellor or anything like that. But, but nowadays, there always seems to be a school counsellor on staff. Uh, some schools have uh, more than one. And in fact, I was just talking to a colleague who's recently moved back to the UK where there's an enormous focus on school counsellors, in fact, more on school counsellors than there is of computers in the classroom. How well are we equipped with that here in Australia, do you think? I totally agree with you in terms of um, counselling. When I was at school, it was very, very similar. Um, and in fact, when I first moved out of being a classroom teacher into a head teacher of um, welfare at the time, um, we probably really struggled to get kids to see the school counsellor. Um, I think where the change has taken place is in within our actual curriculum. Within our curriculum, a number of, across a number of different um, key learning areas, we teach about mental health and about wellbeing. Um, and because of that, our students have more knowledge about themselves. We promote the school counsellors, again, not in that deficit tone. Mm. You don't need to go to a school counsellor because you've got a problem. You can go to a school counsellor because the person is, that person's a, a middleman, um, somebody that doesn't take sides, somebody that you can freely speak to and open. Um, different in primary school and high school um, based around their um, confidentiality. But quite often in a high school, It may be a one-off time or it may be ongoing that the child needs um, counselling. I go back to that whole team aspect that we work together in a team um, to best meet the need of the child. So I think that we've worked in education pretty hard to not stigmatise so that we have a lot of boys and girls both seeing the school counsellor rather than just it's for it's for girls and girls have problems so um and we know that we have that problem particularly with older males 
um, you know, who don't want to go and see somebody. So we've worked pretty hard in education to not stigmatise mm. that you only go to a counsellor if you've got troubles. But our counsellors work on such a broad range of not just, again, that deficit model, but those strategies to support or what the child can do to help themselves. So they work in conjunction a lot of the time with services outside of the school or paediatricians or um, government organisations um, and agencies that help our children. So again, it's that team um, approach. Do we have enough school counsellors um, in our school? My answer probably would be no. You'd always um, like a few we more. Could, we, could, we, could, <laughs> we would love a few more. Um, they inform a lot for us as well. Um, so a, a number of our school counsellors have that psychology background and, and as a deputy principal, I will always go to a school counsellor and often ask for um, what support processes because I'm not the psychologist. Mm. They also help inform us in terms of testing processes, can inform us about the students' learning um, which then helps our classroom teachers in turn. Their their job as a school counsellor is so complex now. It's not just about listening to a child's problems. They do a lot more in terms of learning to support us in the classrooms as classroom teachers. So let's say you've got a parent at home who's thinking, okay, I think I know that there's a problem. I have a feeling that something's up, but I'm not really sure exactly how to go about this. I don't know who to talk to. Where should they start? What's What are some good places to, to think about starting? Mm-hmm. So parents would normally contact the school quite often because they feel safe in contacting us and they'd speak to a deputy principal or a year advisor uh, most commonly. Sometimes they would ask to speak to the school counsellor straight away, but probably not as common. They would go on to explain to, let's say it was me, what they're experiencing at home. I would normally say that I would speak to the child too first. The child has to voluntarily be willing to go to school counselling as well. Mm. Um, Does it normally work if um, the child's like, no, 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 I'm not going, I'm not going to see anyone? And a good way in in a high school setting of getting coming across that is um, by speaking to the child about that it's confidential. Obviously, at some point, if there is... Um, high risk and we've got a concern about significant harm then the school counsellor must pass that information on Um, but when the students feel that it's they're going to be comfortable in that the counsellor's not going to come running back to me to tell me their child's deep darker secrets then they're more open and willing to to go to school counselling I always tell parents then that based on how the child is feeling we will share information with you but sometimes the the children share information with the school counsellor because they feel more comfortable that it's not going to go back home. Um, and sometimes that's for a range of different reasons. Sometimes children actually want to protect their own parents mm. um, because their own parents may be, be dealing with you know, um, their own issues. So, um, again, it's we want parents to feed us that information from home where we can actually try and um, help. Likewise, we also sometimes give parents advice to go and see their, their own GP or to go and seek private counselling outside of school. So... It's working together to try and meet what the actual parents' needs are as well as what the students' needs are um, during that time. But sometimes we speak to kids and they'll turn around to us and say, there's nothing wrong, it's fine, I'm happy to sit in my bedroom at home. And again, it's that generation change yeah. that we have. We know that we hear from so many parents that, oh, they just sit at home, they just sit on their phone and they sit in their bedroom and they shut the door. Whereas 10, 15 years ago, we'd be outside after school playing and playing cricket and you know, riding our bikes and we don't see that as much as um, what we would have quite a number of years ago. In the next episode, I'll talk with Kylie about the benefits of using a centralised system for managing well-being, like Central, 
And again, full disclosure on this point, Callaghan College uses Central as its school management platform. But as I've mentioned earlier, these conversations are much more about the learning outcomes for students than they are about the software. To hear the next conversation, make sure you subscribe to Central Station on your favourite podcast app and keep a lookout for next week's episode. This podcast is brought to you by Central. And for more information, visit the website, central.com.au. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now. Thank you.